First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Tonight on 360, the latest stop on the former president's road from courthouse to campaign stop and back. How it might play in New Hampshire, whether he can make it lead all the way back to the White House. Also tonight, what happened in the courtroom today is Eugene Carroll, the woman Trump's already been found liable for sexually abusing and defaming, seeks damages. A reporter was in the room with both of them. And later, a new murder charge against the alleged Long Island serial killer and remarkable new details of how investigators made their case. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with the former president just now wrapping up his event in Atkinson, New Hampshire, after showing what his campaign will look like from here on out as both a Republican frontrunner and a defendant in multiple civil and criminal trials. Straight after last night's victory in the Iowa caucuses, he flew from Des Moines to New York to be in court today for jury selection in the penalty phase of Eugene Carroll's federal defamation lawsuit. Now, we're going to talk more about what happened in court later in the broadcast from There, uh, Trump flew to New Hampshire for tonight's event, where he connected his legal troubles with his political success. They're bullshit indictments, I'll tell you. They're Biden. You know what I call them? I call them, they're Biden indictments. No, they've weaponized the DOJ. They go after their political opponent. Now, in this particular case, it didn't work out so well. If I didn't get indicted all these times, and if they didn't unfairly go after, I would have won. But it would have been much closer, I tell you. I don't know if I would have made the trade. I might have just liked the position we're in right now. I would doing very well on that score. Well, this wasn't the first time he's commuted, as it were, between his political and legal worlds. It was, however, the first time he's gotten concrete proof from actual voters, not just campaign donors, that it works. Iowa caucusgoers certainly did not mind backing a candidate fresh from one trial, the New York fraud case, on his way to another. And for now, campaigning this way is entirely his choice. As you may know, he does not have to be present in civil cases like the one today or that civil fraud trial, which wrapped up last week. If the former president thought it was hurting his campaign, he'd certainly be entirely within his rights to skip court. He hasn't. Just the opposite. He's embraced his status as a defendant and by his account, a victim. And he routinely fundraises off it. This is the only person this never happened before. But I go to a lot of courthouses because of Biden, because they're using that for election interference. No modern presidential candidate has ever managed to make his status as a civil and criminal defendant many times over a political and financial asset. Last night, Iowa voters gave it a thumbs up. A week from tonight, we'll see if New Hampshire voters do the same. CNN's Kristen Holmes is traveling with the former president joins us now from his event in Atkinson, New Hampshire. So what did he have to say about his opponents tonight? Well, Anderson, unsurprisingly, he spent most of the time attacking Nikki Haley. Now, we have talked about how Haley is trying to say that this is a two-man race, despite the fact that she came in third in Iowa last night. However, to Trump's team, the state of New Hampshire is a two-man race between him and Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis does not have a robust ground game here, and they have seen Haley ticking up in the polls. They are doing everything they can to go after her. Listen to just some of what Trump said tonight. As you know, Nikki Haley, in particular, is counting on the Democrats and liberals to infiltrate your Republican primary. You know that. The, that's what's happening. You have 
a group of people coming in that are not Republicans. She came in third, and she lost to not a particularly great candidate, obviously, as you've seen. She lost to somebody that uh, beat her by about two and a half points, Rhonda Sanctimonious. So, so uh, I'll tell you, we have these two people. We really got to get back on to Biden and beating the Democrats and not wasting a lot of time with these two. Just to be clear, Donald Trump's campaign does not actually believe that Democrats are going to come out and vote for Nikki Haley. In fact, they've actually been watching that registration very carefully. The cutout was the cutoff was October 6th for people to switch their registration from Democrat to Republican. And they've been watching that only 3000 people did, which is not something they believe could actually impact the race, despite what Donald Trump says. Now, there is a strategy here, Anderson. They are trying to hit Haley with independents, both conservative and moderate. One, they are attacking her on immigration. That is to shore up Donald Trump's conservative support. They believe that is a key issue among Republicans here in New Hampshire. The other thing they are putting out ads on is her position on Social Security and Medicare. They are hoping that takes some votes away from moderates, from Haley, from moderates, because that is something they care about. They know that people are going to show up to vote just against Donald Trump here in New Hampshire, but they're trying to limit how many people do. The former president brought uh, Vivek Ramaswamy out on stage. How helpful does the Trump campaign think he can be in New Hampshire? In terms of how helpful he could be with votes, they really aren't quite sure, but they do believe that every single vote counts, and they believe that about 98% of people who would have gone out to vote for Vivek, if they were going to switch their votes to anyone else in the race, would vote for Donald Trump. Now, I was told two weeks ago that we had senior advisors from Donald Trump's team going to events in New Hampshire of the Vex to see what the momentum was. Now, of course, again, this was two weeks ago, but they clearly saw something there in terms of taking votes from Donald Trump. So how much this helps them, they aren't sure, but they do believe that it will help them in some capacity. All right, Christian Holmes, thanks very much. With me here tonight, three CNN political commentators, uh, Ashley Allison, David Axelrod, who both served in the Obama administration, and former Trump White House Communications Director, Alyssa Farr-Griffin. Um, David, I mean, if you are Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, do you have any better idea now about how to run against Trump? Yeah, don't do what you did. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. Listen, I think that um, if I were Haley, first of all, DeSantis, I think, is, is not going to put up a huge fight in New Hampshire. He doesn't have the resources to do that. He's coming to New Hampshire to do a town hall tonight. It might be a smart thing to... Uh, denounce the New Hampshire primary in front of this audience for the benefit of South Carolina voters and say we don't need liberals deciding who the Republican uh, nominee should be. And Haley might want to, you know, she had the right idea when she said New Hampshire corrects Iowa. She just said it two weeks too early. Mm -hmm. But there is a habit in New Hampshire of trying to uh, uh, offset what Iowa does. And, and, you know, she might want to ask uh, voters in New Hampshire if they want to end the campaign, because that effectively is what they'll do if mm. they elect Donald Trump. I experienced this in 2008. Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire voters could have ended the campaign right there. And they said, wait a second, we think this should go on a while longer. We want to see this debate go on. Uh, and so, you know, I would uh, work that if I were mm. Haley a bit. It, Alyssa, do you think it's a smart move for Haley to refuse to debate DeSantis anymore, to say I'll only debate if it's, it's Trump? 
Yeah, it's the strategically wise move. She needs to say that this is a two-person race. I think last night we all thought it was like, that's kind of a bold statement when you came in third. But based on how Donald Trump is responding to Nikki Haley, he has been going after her on truth in that speech tonight in New Hampshire. I think that he thinks it's a two-person race. Um, actually, in fact, Donald Trump went so far as in his criticism of Nikki Haley, actually praised Ron DeSantis and said mm -hmm. he's more MAGA. So his team very much thinks the only threat is Nikki Haley, and their eyes are laser-focused on New Hampshire. And of course, she's crisscrossed the state with the popular governor, Chris Sununu, who's always outperformed Donald Trump in New Hampshire. So if she can reach people the way Chris Sununu has managed to, she could pull off a miracle. Do you think Vivek Ramaswamy gives anything to Trump really now? I think he maybe gives them a little. I don't know that it, it's... And listen, the margins are close enough. That could be that could be enough. Um, I think it's hard to say how real his support was. Um, Ashley, I want to play something that Nikki Haley was asked on Fox News. Are you a racist party? Are you involved in a racist party? No, we're, we're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. Our goal is to make sure that today is better than yesterday. Are we perfect? No, but our goal is to always make sure we try and be more perfect every day that we can. So Haley's campaign later affirmed her statement saying, quote, America has always had racism, but America has never been a racist country. What's your reaction to that? Look, I mean, what, two weeks ago, she was confused about what caused the Civil War. I'm not surprised that she is doing this. Nikki Haley is not trying to be a leader in this moment. She's not even really going after Donald Trump. She hasn't. And so she's in uh, New Hampshire also. Maybe if she was taking this tone in Iowa, I could see. But New Hampshire, you have moderates, you have independents. They understand the history of this country. What she said is just factually wrong when we think about the indigenous people who were removed from their land in this country, the lineage of slavery. It's offensive, especially coming from South Carolina, where her claim is that she was lowering the Confederate flag with, you know, after nine black people were murdered by a white supremacist. To have the the guts to even say that there has never been any, that this country is was not a racist country is offensive, and it won't play well in the general election if she can even get out of it. David, the DeSantis obviously is just putting everything on, on South Carolina for now. Is that smart strategically to basically blow off? I don't really understand where he's going in this race because uh, he blew an extraordinary amount of money trying to win the Iowa caucuses. That was his goal in the beginning. He salvaged something by taking second place yesterday. But I don't know who's going to give Ron DeSantis money. The only theory they may have is that there may be some people who want him or someone to hang around as a fail-safe if something should be set Donald Trump like a conviction. But uh, I don't think that there is time for... I mean, the, those verdicts or that verdict would come so late that I don't know that how, how he sustains this. So I think he's on a glide path out of this race, and maybe it's South Carolina's closer to Florida and home. It's so telling that he wanted to be, that Trump wanted to be in court today where it was for jury selection, no less, in a civil case. I mean, he doesn't even have to be at the actual civil trial. He was there for jury selection. Well, and let's think about this. I said this before that Donald Trump didn't even show up for the actual hearing to determine if he was liable for sexual assault. 
any man, woman, person accused of something that heinous, that was innocent, would show up and defend themselves tooth and nail to rectify their good name. And he blew it off and decided to do whatever he did. But he is showing up for jury selection, and I'm sure he'll show up for damages because there's money involved. How that is not resonating with voters, especially female voters, is beyond me. This is where the Nikki Haley's of the world need to take the gloves off. You're not winning this by doing this like casual contrast. You need to talk about the man, the character, and the things everyone lightly knows but tiptoes around or Republican leaders just refuse to talk about. Why do you think Nikki Haley is not going fully at the former president? She doesn't think she can win if she doesn't pull off of some of Trump voters. And look, he beat both of Donald, uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley like a drum last night in, from the Iowa caucuses. And so she thinks that if she is kind to him that maybe some folks will leave Donald Trump, but that's not the case. They are loyal to him until perhaps you uh, draw a contrast as to why they should say no. And if you want a Republican in the White House, it is going to be really hard. It's not impossible, but Donald Trump is most likely going to lose to uh, President Biden because he already has. And so I don't see how she can think this is a long game because, listen, if it is Nikki Haley against Joe Biden, you better believe the Biden campaign is going to pull every single receipt for every misspoken word about race, um, the inability to to stand with women like E. Jean Carroll, if it becomes a general election with Nikki Haley and Joe Biden. You know, the, Nikki Haley's great vulnerability is that she thinks every issue is finessable and some issues are unfinessable. Yeah, and you look like a politician when you try. Mm -hmm. And I think that hurts her. Ashley Allison, thanks to Lucifer Griffin, David Axelrod. Next, a measure of that loyalty Ashley was just talking about with a unique look at the measure of support the former president enjoys from his supporters and how they're showing it at the cash register of a store where every aisle is aisle Trump. Also tonight, the original charges were chilling enough. Now a new murder charge against the alleged Long Island serial killer. How authorities say they got the evidence for it. This show is supported by BetterHelp Online Therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Maybe you'd go hiking or take a much needed nap. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? BetterHelp wants you to know that now's the time to choose happiness. And working with a therapist can help you get closer to a more blissful you. Therapists are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions. And they teach productive coping skills, giving you a greater sense of confidence to face your stress and anxiety. With BetterHelp, you get the benefits of in-person therapy. Plus, it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. BetterHelp is connected over 3 million people and counting with licensed therapists, all 100% online. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com AC360 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash AC360. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. So campaign memorabilia is nothing new, nor is merchandise bearing the former president's name. But in one small Virginia town, they've come together in what, what might be called an all-consuming way. A former church, now a store, where CNN's Ellie Reeve found out indictments 
are good for business. The mugshot was really hot. And this stuff lasts probably about two months. It stays really hot. But the first week that we, the mugshot came out, we sold like 2,000 t-shirts. What's that? <laughs> That's uh, Trump's balls. Okay. <laughs> Whitey Taylor runs a busy Trump store in Boone's Mill, a town of fewer than 500 people in southwestern Virginia. We visited a week after Christmas, with the Iowa caucuses just days away. Taylor predicted Trump would win the Republican nomination, and then business would really boom. Can only get these here. <laughs> How much? Are Twenty dollars. Yeah. Customers were bullish too. What the superfans bought offers some insight into what they want politically. The merch is not just simple campaign slogans. It's defiant, even vulgar, aimed at buyers who enjoy being mad at the state of America and think there's one guy who will fix it. When Trump was indicted for all these different things, did people stop buying his merchandise? No, they bought it more. Why? Because they knew it was like Russia collusion. This is all just all bull made up bull Now he has gained a lot of people because of this administration that we have now, yeah. You get we, people coming and saying Oh, that? yeah, definitely, yeah. They'll just come in and say, never again will I be that stupid, you know. Hi, welcome to the Trump Show. What have you observed about what people are looking for? People want our economy better. They're, they're very scared, I think, because of the way things are going. They feel like um, where we're at right now is not, is like stagnant. Were you interested in politics before Trump? Yes, and you know, it's strange, because I've always been Democrat. Really? <laughs> Yes. So I yeah. am a firm believer in believing in a person and system that's going to make positive changes. I think in the past, I made some quick judgments about my voting. And so I'm very more selective and it's more thought put into it. Why'd you come in today? To get some uh, Trump stuff so I can advertise and, you know, support him. 06, 08, I like lost everything I had. But I barely survived. I mean, I don't know how I did and this is leading up to the same thing again. I often wonder what encourages people to be a Democrat, because I don't see a lot of kindness. I don't see a lot of help for our country. And I see a lot of talk, no action. He got into this business at the very beginning of Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. Taylor's a serial entrepreneur and intention seeker, and he prayed to God to guide him while selling racing merch at the Daytona 500. My son said, Dad, what's God telling you? I said, came in my spirit. He wants me to help Trump. I said, I'm going to order a thousand t-shirts. He said, Dad, but that's crazy. You know how crazy you get. Just get a hundred. I said, go big or go home, boy. I said, if God's telling me, we'll sell everyone of them, not with them trash can leave. All we had was a white t-shirt. It said, uh, hire the vets, fire the idiots, Trump 2016 on the front, red, white, and blue. And on the back, it said, finally, someone with balls, Donald J. Trump, okay? And I became known as the balls man on the tour. Taylor opened the store in the fall of 2020 inside a hundred-year-old church. After the election, the big seller was Stop the Steal. Did you think the election was stolen? There's no doubt the election was stolen, yeah. And what did you think of January 6th? It was a bad thing, but if you look back, you actually look at the tapes and stuff, they were let in. Well, but I've... they still should have never went inside, okay? You never go in somebody's house or a house, a public house like that, yeah. Does that complicate what you think of Trump at all, that he... No, Why no. Not? Definitely not, because he, he definitely didn't tell him to go and storm the house. Would you have any interest in running this store if Trump weren't so controversial? 
I doubt it. I like his controversy. You know, we need something that we can laugh about and be happy about. There's liberals that think they can come in here and actually tell me what to do. The last one was a professor from UNC. She was just telling me what a great job Biden's doing. I tried to tell her to leave. But do you not appreciate, you know, her oh, coming in and wanting uh, to mix it up a little bit? You know? Oh, I love it, yeah, but she don't want to hear what I have to say. She wanted me to only hear what she had to say. You said that you want to rename this town Trump Town? Why not? The Boons are dead. The mill's gone. Let's change. Do you think other people support you with that? Not really, but it doesn't really matter. It's, it's good controversy if it never happens. Ellie Reeve, CNN, Boone's Mill, Virginia. Well, just ahead, a deeper dive into the first day of the former president's second defamation trial that began a day after his win in Iowa and seven before the New Hampshire primary. Less than 24 hours after the former president wrote election denialism to a resounding win in Iowa, the federal judge in his second defamation trial involving E. Jean Carroll, a woman he was found last year to have sexually abused, asked prospective jurors today if any believed the 2020 election was stolen. Two of them said yes. Just one of many noteworthy moments on the opening day of a trial that included an appearance by the former president, as you know, not required to be there, but it is part of his campaign now. Plus, more comments by the judge to prospective jurors that as a legal matter, quote, it has been determined already that Mr. Trump did sexually assault Ms. Carroll. Carroll, who testifies tomorrow, is seeking $10 million for defamatory statements made by the former president in 2019. I'm joined now by Kara Scannell, who was at the courthouse today, as well as our legal analyst, former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig, and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson. So what was it like in court, Kara? Well, you know, today begins with jury selection. You have Donald Trump in there with E. Jean Carroll in the same room. They haven't seen each other in decades. And this has been such a major force in Trump's life for the past year with that trial last year, too. So they're sitting just separated by one table. It didn't appear that they made eye contact at any point, uh, but it was certainly, you know, a moment to see them there together. Now, there was this judge, Judge Lewis Kaplan, really runs a tight courtroom. And we saw that right out of the gate with one of Trump's attorneys kind of sparring with him. She wanted the judge to adjourn the trial on Thursday so Trump could attend his mother-in-law's funeral. The judge said, I'm not stopping him from going. She said, well, you're stopping him from coming here. And he's like, I already ruled on this. Argument's over, we're moving on. Now the judge did say, if Trump's defense is ready to rest their case on Thursday and Trump is in Florida, he would let him come to court on Monday to testify, if in fact he does actually testify. But Elliot, I mean, him testifying, there's... The, the, what he could actually testify to is very limited. Very limited. So the judge here, Judge Kaplan, put very tight restrictions on this. Let's be clear. It's already been established that Donald Trump sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll and defamed her. And the judge said that was determined last trial. We're not relitigating that. This is only about damages. And so what Judge Kaplan said is if Trump testifies, it can only be about the damages, how much harm was done to E. Jean Carroll. I don't know that Trump would have anything relevant to say on that. And I, and I have to add, I appeared in front of Judge Kaplan a lot of times. You do not mess with Judge Kaplan. So, so the, the former president couldn't test, couldn't te get up there and testify and say, I didn't do this. Exactly. This is wrong. Right. The only other thing he could say is, I feel bad about what happened. That that would be, yeah. To in, show in, some in a sort theoretical, of hypothetical world. That might world. affect the outcome. Exactly. If he could say, this wasn't my intention. My words were misconstrued. I regret this. And somehow well, that would the, imply the, he's guilty, which. I, I don't yeah. think he's the guy to do that. Right. Yeah. Joey, do you, uh, 
Can you imagine him getting up there? No. Um, oh, I could get. I could imagine him getting up there. I would not imagine him being apologetic or anything else. And there are really limitations if he did as to what he'd be able to say. You know, Anderson. I'm just struck though by the opening statement uh, of his team today, basically his attorney, um, in terms of just the uh, the tone. Mm -hmm. uh, it was sort of like, hey, listen, be thankful Trump made you famous, <laughs> right? The reality is, is that what do we have to do with social media and mean tweets that you get on social media? And if you take on a person who happened to be the president, guess what? Uh, you're in the position you want to be. You're on TV all the time. Emotional pain and damages. What are you talking about? I just was surprised tonally mm -hmm. with respect to how it was laid out. And it was clear to me based upon that, that perhaps they were not playing for those jurors, but playing for those mm -hmm. other jurors which are at home in terms of the electorate, because right. we do know she serves that role as his spokesperson. Kara, what were your uh, takeaway from the opening statement? Well, I mean, Carol's lawyers, you know, again, they were all working within the confines. The judge saying this is not a do-over, so don't even argue the other case. So her, her lawyers were saying, you know, she has been threatened ever since uh, Trump made these denials about her. Uh, she has lost her career, you know, saying that nothing has stopped Trump because it was just 24 hours after the verdict last year that he was on a CNN town hall repeating the statements that the jury had just found to be defamatory. And they said, as of their count, Today, Trump posted 22 times today about this case and about E. Jean Carroll. So they're saying, what would it take to stop him and asking the jury to find him in damages, a substantial amount, something that would stop him from doing this? The, um, do, uh, do you think... Uh, e. Jean Carroll would testify? Oh, yes. I, I think she's slated to testify tomorrow. She'll be the central witness because she will tell the jury, and the jury is just nine ordinary New Yorkers, common sense people. She's going to tell them, this is what these statements did to my life. This is what these statements did to my reputation. These are the threats I face because she has to establish both economic damages, but they're also seeking punitive damages here, meaning you, the jury, need to send a message above and beyond whatever dollar figure you can put on this. He needs to be stopped. He needs to be sent a message. And that's why, by the way, this continuing tweeting is only going to hurt Donald Trump. Even How long more. do you think this goes on for? Uh, they say it'll go on for three days, maybe five days, you know, uh, at most. Uh, but the reality is, is that she will testify as to the harm that was endured. And I right. think we saw that in their opening statement. That is her, the team, uh, her, the statement that was made on her behalf with respect to her life, just being in sheer misery based upon all of the hate array that she's getting from the general public right. predicated upon what, you know, what Mr. Trump has done. So it won't be a long trial. The issue will be how much in terms of damages will be awarded. It may very well be significant. Uh, everybody, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, coming up, Hirsch Goldberg, Poland, had part of his hand and left arm blown off by Hamas gunmen while he was hiding with others in a bomb shelter. He was then kidnapped and is believed held in Gaza along with more than 100 other people. Still no movement in securing their release, but now after long negotiations, some medicine might be on its way to some of those hostages. Details on that next. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. 
There's breaking news out of Israel a day after Hamas released video claiming to show the bodies of two dead hostages. The kibbutz where, two, where those two hostages were taken from announced their deaths. 53-year-old Yossi Sharabi leaves behind a wife and three daughters. His brother Eli, whose wife and daughters were murdered on October 7th, was also kidnapped and is believed to be still alive. 38-year-old Itai Sversky is also now confirmed dead. Both of the men's bodies are still being held by Hamas. This comes more than 100 days after the October 7th attacks and on the day that the government of Qatar says it has finally brokered a deal between Israel and Hamas that would allow medicine and aid for the roughly 107 hostages believed to be alive, as well as for Gaza civilians in desperate need. That hopefully includes care for hostages with diabetes and cancers, as well as those who suffered injuries on October 7th, like Hirsch Goldberg Poland, who was born in America. This is video from the attack at the Supernova Music Festival. He and others were attending. You can see him being forced into the back of a truck after the bomb shelter he and others were hiding in was repeatedly attacked. Hirsch's left hand and part of that arm is missing. They were blown off while trying to hide. This is the last any of his family and friends have seen of him in this video. His father, John Poland, joins us now. John, first of all, what's your reaction to the news that, that this deal has been brokered to deliver some medicine to hostages? Look, for the hostages who rely on medicines, it's, it's good news. That being said, part of me feels like it's too little too late. It's day 102 today. The medicines are supposedly going in tomorrow on day 103. You know what? After 103 days, we want our loved ones home. Don't, don't throw us a bone of, of getting medicines after we've been fighting for 103 days. Bring our loved ones home. You, your wife, Rachel, you have been speaking out, not just about your son, but about the plight of all the hostages, but in particular, those hostages who have medical needs, who were severely wounded, like uh, Hirsch was. Um, it's extraordinary that, I mean, Hamas, none of these groups have provided any details about Hirsch or, or others. Have you gotten any information about, about your son? One of the things that we were told early on, Anderson, is that part of the terrorism is the psychological terrorism, not only on the hostages themselves, but on us, their loved ones. And the lack of information is part of that. And so the answer, unfortunately, is still no. We have the video footage that you just showed, um, but beyond that, we don't even know if Hirsch is still alive. We, we believe he is, we hope he is, you know, there are roughly 25 to 30 of the hostages who we now know are dead. And uh, every minute of every day matters a lot. And we're going to keep on fighting until we get all of them home. As we mentioned, Hamas released a trio video showing the same three hostages being held in Gaza with the last video appearing to show two of them who have died. You just talked about the psychological terrorism. The IDF called it psychological torture um, for the families of the hostages. And I know you and Rachel continue You've talked about trying to find slivers of hope anywhere you can about Hirsch. Are you still able to do that? I won't lie. Every day that passes gets harder and harder. That being said, we continue to fight as hard as ever. Uh, I'm here to bring the fight back to Washington. While I'm here, Rachel is in Davos, Switzerland, talking to people there. We have gotten indications from folks in the United States, and I'll get more about this tomorrow and the next day, that they feel like all parties are leaning in more than they have in a while. 
I'm going to try to figure out what that means, but we're getting some, some bursts of optimism, um, but I need more information before I can say that. And I've heard enough rumors in 102 days. So until our loved ones come back, that optimism is, is, is really just grasping for something. It, you know, the, the White House has said today that they don't have any new information regarding the six Americans, one of whom is Hirsch, still believed held by, by Hamas. Um, are you in contact a lot with officials of the, the U.S. government? I mean, do, do, do people from the U.S. government or the IDF, I mean, do they keep you informed as much as possible? We, we do get informed. Unfortunately, the getting informed is oftentimes prefaced with, I'm sorry we have no information, but, and we get the same messages that we've been getting that a lot of people in a lot of countries are working really, really hard. Uh, Rachel and I have talked a lot about it, that there is a big difference between wanting something. We believe that the United States and that Israel and that the other parties would love to bring home the hostages, but there's a gap between wanting and doing, and we're really continuing to push on the doing. What is actually happening? And that's going to be a big part of my message here in Washington the next couple of days is enough sympathy, enough support, enough telling us what you want to happen, what is actually happening. And I'm hoping to leave here with answers in the next couple of days. Mm. Can you just talk about Hirsch a little bit? Uh, I mean, just to, to remind people about who he is. Sure. So Hirsch is a fun-loving guy who embraces life, huge music fan. He was taken, unfortunately, from a music festival celebrating his 23rd birthday. That was after spending the summer visiting six different music, music festivals in Europe. Uh, he's a super curious guy, always reading. Uh, the book that is on his bedstand now is The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. He's a, a thinker. He likes to engage in real conversations with people. And he has a way of, of embracing those around him. They get to know him. They get to love him. And one of the things that's been heartwarming for us in this terrible 102-day nightmare is how many people from around the world literally reach out to us and tell us they met Hirsch at a festival or they've been reading and watching videos about him. And uh, the love we feel as a result of who Hirsch is is uh, the heartwarming thing that's come out of this terrible 102 days. Mm. John Poland, thank you for, for talking with us tonight and my best to you and, and to Rachel and your whole family. Uh, we wish you continued strength. Thank you, Anderson. Pre thank Coming you. up next, the accused Gilgo Beach serial killer charged with a fourth murder. Details on the victim, the new DNA evidence of the case, and what the suspect's attorney is saying about all of it ahead. In a Long Island, New York courtroom today, Rex Hoyerman, the suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer. You may recall when he was arrested last summer, authorities accused him of leading a double life, alleging he hired escorts and then killed them. He's now charged with a fourth murder. The victim, 25-year-old Maureen Brainerd Barnes. She vanished in 2007. Her body was found three years later in the marsh, not far from the bodies of three other women he's already accused of killing. Each was petite, their bodies bound and wrapped in burlap, and today the prosecutor said DNA evidence helped connect the suspect to all four murders. Here's Jean Cazares. It has been 16 years since the last time I saw my sister, 16 years since I heard her voice, because 16 years ago, she was silenced. Silenced prosecutors say by Rex Huerman, now announcing a fourth murder charge for the Manhattan architect, while his estranged wife looked on. The defendant is charged with murder in the second degree. We've charged the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes 
to add to the mur- uh, to the already charged murders. They are called the Gilgo Four, young women, all murdered between 2007 and 2010. Their bodies were found close together along Gilgo Beach on Long Island in New York in 2010. Hewerman was charged last July in the murders of three of the Gilgo victims, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. But the family of the fourth young woman, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, had yet to get their chance at justice. Today, that all changed. This indictment marks a change in the investigation. The grand jury investigation of the so-called Gilgo Four is over. It has been concluded. Uh, And we will proceed with those cases uh, in court. And again, we look forward to proving the allegations. Hewerman has continued to maintain his innocence and pleaded not guilty to this new charge. Again, he, he said, I'm not guilty of these charges. He's looking forward to fight these charges. 25-year-old Brainerd Barnes disappeared in 2007. Losing Maureen has become a wound that never truly heals. It remains a part of me. <sighs> Prosecutors say Brainerd Barnes was left restrained by three leather belts. A female human hair was recovered from the buckle of one of those belts. That single hair underwent sophisticated DNA testing that resulted in a link directly to Hewerman. It was uh, 7.9 trillion times more likely to have come from someone with the identical genetic profile as Asa Ellerup. Uh, we believe these DNA uh, results are significant. Prosecutors say Ellerup, Hewerman's now estranged wife, also was not home during the time of Brainerd Barnes' murder. A credit card statement found during a search of Hewerman's storage units shows she had taken her kids to Atlantic City. Hair matched to Ellerup and Hewerman was found with Waterman's remains, and hair from their daughter was found with Costello's. Cell phone records further confirm Hewerman's family was out of town when all of the murders took place. The indictment says Hewerman also used burner phones during this time period, with billing records showing that, quote, between July 6th and 9th, 2007, there were 16 interactions between this burner phone and Brainerd Barnes' cell phone. Her cell phone had no further activity until July 12th, 2007. Two outbound calls were made from her cell phone on that date, quote, checking her voicemail from a cell site location, near the Long Island Expressway. And Jean Cazares joins us now. Is there any sense of what this accused killer is going to, and what, what is his defense going to be? Oh, I think it's going to be very aggressive because his attorney today, Michael Brown, had a laundry list of things. First of all, we never knew this. He said that for a year and a half before Rex Hewerman was arrested, that he was surveilled by authorities every day and every night. And he said he's seen all the documentation, and every day and every night he would take the train in New York City, go to his architectural firm, take the train back to Long Island, be with his family all night, and sit on his front porch. He also said that when he was arrested on Fifth Avenue in July of this last year, that when he went into the vehicle, that it was equipped with audio and video, and it was recording. And he said that his reaction was stunned, disbelief, didn't understand what was happening. Additionally, he's going to attack the DNA, the DNA process of testing. And when they did the search of the home, he said he has pictures that they they didn't even wear gloves at some Mm. points. We'll see. June Cazares, thanks very much. Coming up at the top of the hour, CNN's town hall in New Hampshire with Governor Ron DeSantis. In a moment, we'll take a look at what voters there are saying as they take stock of what happened in Iowa and look ahead to their primary exactly one week from today. 
We're just a few minutes away from Messina in Town Hall with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at New England College in Henniker, New Hampshire. Will Blitzer is the moderator. Governor DeSantis and the other Republican candidates are now focused on the Granite State with the state's primary a week away. Following the campaign trail tonight, CNN's Omar Jimenez. From a cold Iowa to a snowy New Hampshire, where voters here are in the final frigid stretch to their primary. How long have you been voting in New Hampshire? All my life. Do you think what happened in Iowa is going to happen here in New Hampshire? Uh, I think that is a strong possibility of yes. Former President Trump swept 98 out of 99 counties in Iowa. Some feel it's going to be more of the same in the Granite State. And why do you feel that way? Um, there's a lot of people who are um, won't come out and actually say that they're going to vote for him but we'll vote for him. The question is how that dynamic will play against Nikki Haley, who's jumped in recent polls, some that show her within single digits of the former president in New Hampshire. Despite her third place Iowa finish, she polled well with moderates, which New Hampshire has a lot of. And she's now trying to position New Hampshire's primary as a two-person race to voters. Cheers. Cheers, Lots of Baileys in that? Oh, I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> voters like Gary Houle who says he's done with Trump, for now. I believe in honesty, you know, I, see, I watch all these things that are going on with him right now, and I, I, I have to believe that a lot of it's kind of true, but I am looking for an alternative Republican to run against Joe Biden. I'm leaning toward Nikki Haley. But he painted a crucial bottom line with the former president. I ruled him out in the primary, but, you know, if he were to win the nomination, then he'd be ruled back in. You were surprised a little bit by the results in Iowa. Why is that? I just didn't think he'd have that clear momentum. Kevin Clark voted for Trump in 2016, wanting a change. We got a bigger change than I think any of us expected. Years later, he wants a change again, but this time from Trump. You think it'll be different here in New Hampshire? I certainly hope so. I think New Hampshire people, they judge things on their own. They don't go by polls. They don't decide important uh, elections by anything other than what they think is best for the country and for them. Everybody got stickers? Some Trump voters are confident he'll repeat. You can, you can feel it. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. Other independents are still making up their minds. Everyone here is different, so I'm not sure you know, who's going to you know, feel which way. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. To see whether it's more of the same or legitimate challenge to the former president. The countdown is on. Rain, shine, or snow. Even with weather like this? Oh yes, we're New Hampshire people. Now, it's a much different voting environment here in New Hampshire than it is in Iowa. For one, a lot more moderates for who Nikki, Nikki Haley has polled much more popular with among Republicans. But also independents or undeclared, as they're called, are able to vote as well, which could provide a boost. And Haley has used all of that, including a third place finish in Iowa, to claim that it is now a two-person race, while Ron DeSantis is looking for any inroads he can as he started his day in South Carolina, both yeah. of them with a pretty steep hill to climb when it comes to the former president. Yeah, certainly. Omar Jimenez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The CNN Republican presidential town hall with Ron DeSantis starts now.